We all know what it feels like to share something difficult going on in our lives with someone who is truly empathetic. Sometimes we know because the alternatives are so obviously lacking. Whomever we're talking with doesn't seem to really have the time, seems distracted, or makes remarks that have a distancing effect most of all. We'd like to believe that empathy is part and parcel of what healthcare providers offer patients, but many argue that people who work in healthcare today are either losing their sense of empathy or losing a sense of how to express it at the very moments when patients need it most. We're going to unpack this emotional connection quandary and find out about efforts to restore and ensure empathy in caregiving on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly and also for later listening via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Apart from valuing empathy for its own human sake, it's a hugely important part of effective communication with patients and achieving better health and health outcomes. Remember, if you like to Twitter, go ahead and send some tweets. And if you could, put at the IHI in your tweets so we can bring uh, some of the folks who follow uh, events here at IHI into the conversation. And uh, I'm glad to see everyone chiming in from all parts of uh, the country and in Canada and other countries as well. Welcome. We've had a wonderful outpouring of interest in this topic, so we do hope if you like what you hear today that you'll tell others about the program, which will be available on our website by tomorrow morning. Let me now briefly introduce our guests, and as always, a reminder that there are longer bios about each of these individuals on IHI.org and on their own organization's websites as well. In the studio here is Helen Reese. She's Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Empathy and Relational Science Program in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Reese has devoted her career to the neuroscience and art of helping relationships. Welcome. Thank you. Stacy Palata is a senior director in the Office of Patient Experience at Cleveland Clinic. In this role, she partners with key members of Human Resources to drive organizational culture development, employee engagement initiatives, and service training and sustainability. Stacy joins us from the far flung location or far away location of Abu Dhabi, uh, but she may as well be in Cleveland. She sounds so good. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Terrific. And Martha Hayward is here also in the studio. She's lead for public and patient engagement at IHI. She's a founding board member of the nonprofit Women's Health Exchange and as a cancer survivor served on the Patient and Family Advisory Council of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. I just want to express my joy at the the fact that the cherry blossoms are blooming. I got that from the chat. Okay. In Washington, D.C. All right, right, in Washington. (laughs) All right. Well, that's thrilling. All right. Spring has arrived. Um, What better time to talk about empathy? So, Helen, we're going to start with you. Um, I gave you the sort of quick task, and then we'll get into a little bit more of your research. If you'd help us define empathy, and I was wondering uh, if there's if confusion about the term is maybe why it might be a little bit missing in action these days. Welcome. Thank you, Madge. Your question is spot on. There's a lot of confusion about what empathy is. And one of the problems is that uh, neuroscience is actually showing that empathy is many things. It is not just one thing. It is actually a capacity. Uh, Just like intelligence, there's not just one way to measure intelligence. Empathy also has multiple components. And I think that causes some of the confusion. Other uh, commonly confusing terms are what what's the difference between sympathy, pity, empathy, compassion. So empathy is actually the newest term, and it is derived from the Greek word in suffering. And it developed about 100 years ago um, when artists were conveying their emotion through their artwork and other people were appreciating that same emotion. And so this term came into the lexicon to describe the fact that someone, an observer, could pick up the feeling of somebody else. And it quickly moved into the doctor-patient relationship. Empathy is different from sympathy 
the the term sympathy actually comes from the root same suffering. And so um, the confusion is that many people think empathy means I feel your pain and, and that that's the only meaning. That is a part of empathy. But sometimes we just understand someone's pain even if we don't actually feel it. So the term sympathy is under the same umbrella, if you will. Antipathy, if you want to take the roots even further, is anti or disregard for someone else's suffering. And compassion is from the Latin meaning with suffering. So being with someone in their suffering. So the term empathy refers to a broad capacity to both perceive the suffering or pain or joy of others and to respond. So it has an inflow and an outflow. And I think part of the reason that it's so hard to define is that it doesn't have clear boundaries itself. When we experience empathy, there is a temporary kind of merging of self and other. And um, the, the term lends itself to some kind of fuzziness and ambiguity. But within empathy are cognitive components where we understand the suffering of others. There are affective or emotional components where we feel with others. There are behavioral components where we respond with helping behaviors. And there are moral components which guide us to help and guide us to respond um, even if it's inconvenient or even if there's no gain to us. Okay. Wow, lots to think about there, but that's very, very helpful. That's an interesting landscape on that. And some one of the things that I keep thinking about, it's also, it's sort of seeing and hearing. It's kind of almost your senses are really taking in um, a, another person. Um, so how did you get so interested in this, I guess? And um, what's been going on? Um, you, you, there's a whole field uh, that is really growing now and a whole area at uh, Mass General. Um, and you've certainly been writing and talking about this. So what has what got you interested, particularly in what's happening, which is often the most the, the thing talked about the most, the dynamic between physicians and patients? So, um, Madge, that's a great question. I'm a psychiatrist, and over the last 10 years, I started noticing that more and more patients were coming to their conversations with me um, to debrief and sometimes really deal with the negative experience that they had had with their um, medical appointments. And first I just thought, oh, you know, this just is happening here and there. But it started to become quite a theme. And at the same time, over the last 10 years, there have been more and more headlines in the media about patients wanting more compassionate care. You know, there's a headline, famous one, uh, when the doctor is in, but you wish he wasn't, um, when <laughs> uh, teaching doctors how to be nicer. And so I, I realized that what I was sensing right in my own practice was really kind of a national crisis. And um, I got involved in empathy research at MGH through physiological studies where we were measuring what goes on internally when people are feeling understood and empathized with and, and not. And that's really what hooked me. And what does go on when people are feeling? What is the physiological thing that can be actually described? Well, the fascinating thing is that when we actually measure doctors and patients with with, uh, a technology called skin conductance monitoring, we were able to measure whether the level of um, uh, arousal, autonomic arousal in each person was in sync with one another or whether there was no matching. And in um, a study done by Carl Marcy, um, he showed that uh, patients who rated their doctors highest on empathy had the greatest number of synchronous periods in, in their sessions. So quickly, what and I, all these subjects, believe me, everyone, I, I know that, that this is huge. What are some of the most, uh, what would you say is at least a snapshot of what the problems are around the disconnect, and what are you starting to learn about a reconnect? Well, we all know that health care is um, an area that is 
very burdened at this moment in time with um, greater documentation needs than ever. Um, uh, doctors are now typing their own notes while patients are in the room, which is uh, a barrier. Um, there's uh, a lot of throughput, meaning more and more patients being seen in shorter amounts of time, which really challenges the natural-born empathy that um, most people come to healthcare professions with. Um, and so it's our task to um, examine this and find out ways that people can connect even in shorter visits, and also realize that some things can't be done in a short visit, and that that fact needs to be acknowledged, and um, there needs to be accommodations for that. All right. Let's talk a little bit. We're going to run through a couple of Helen's slides, and then we'll turn uh, to uh, to Stacy. So let's, John, show the one, first of all, about some survey results and uh, what, what this tells us. So just recently, um, a few months ago, um, we did a, a webinar at the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Care, and uh, we asked a polling question of the audience, which um, was uh, nearly 500 people, and we asked the question, how many of you believe your institution or clinics could benefit from empathy training? Poor Helen is uh, abodied with two people away from a computer screen here. <laughs> so I'll be your eyes here. How many believe their institution or clinics could benefit from empathy training? Okay. And so uh, the results were that 90% of the audience felt that their institutions could benefit. 9% were not sure. And 1% felt that they did not need empathy training. So I think this speaks volumes about the problem and how pervasive and ubiquitous it is. All right. And what are we finding out? Let's flip to the next one. Patient-rated care items. By the way, if you're only joining us by phone, you can uh, get the slides uh, that we're looking at right now by emailing info at IHI.org. So... What you're showing the audience right now is the empathy, one of the empathy scales that we gave our um, our patient subjects in a randomized control trial where we were uh, training doctors um, in, in one cohort and the other randomized control group did not receive training. And this is a standard um, a validated scale called the Care Measure Consultation and Relational Empathy Scale. And... Um, it has 10 items, and these were the items that we asked patients to rate their doctors on. Okay. And um, what what do we ha we have a sense that these improve, right, over time or can? Yes. In in the, the empathy training that I developed at MGH, uh, we condensed it to three hours of training. And in this study, six different specialties were represented in our in our cohort. And we found that with three hours of training really directed at improving the perception of patients' communication, verbal and mostly nonverbal, um, and training in how to respond appropriately and how not to miss things because you're staring into the computer and missing all kinds of displays that the patient is giving, um, that we able we were able to show that patients rated their doctors significantly higher on this empathy scale in addition to several other scales that we gave them. Okay. All right. Well, we've laid out a little bit. Um, we are, um, in our resource document, there's a lot of really interesting literature, Helen has been co-author on some interesting research. We'll also try and get some of those links in here. There's a TED Talk that we can also uh, share, which sort of explains some of it. I think part of what we're trying to do here is both look at sort of what the research is showing uh, in terms of disconnect, but also the ways in which it can be repaired. And in this case, of course, we're talking about physicians and patients, but uh, by extension, it would be interesting, and maybe we can talk about that later with other providers as well. So uh, Helen's in the studio, so she's not going anywhere. Stacy, are you there? I am. Okay. So um, 
your, the YouTube video from the Cleveland Clinic, it went live in February of 2013, Empathy, the Human Connection to Patient Care. And I looked at the last time, I, at least I looked at the YouTube site, it said it had been viewed or downloaded over a million times. So I'm sure the number uh, has only grown. So I want to know what was going on or what has been going on at Cleveland Clinic and um, why was this film created? Sure. You know, it's um, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and to be sharing the Cleveland Clinic story around empathy with everybody. I'm wondering, can we go through my slides as yes. I tell the story? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Fantastic. So um, if we just set the stage a little bit about Cleveland Clinic, we are an integrated health system, primarily in Cleveland, Ohio. We're a large system, so we have over 1,200 beds here at our main campus. We have 11 regional hospitals. 18 family health centers, and we have a bit of an international presence as well as a national presence. So we're in Florida, Canada, Las Vegas, and Abu Dhabi. And in some ways, I am convinced that Las Vegas is more exotic than Abu Dhabi, but that's really not the point of this particular (laughs) webinar. Our revenue is about $6 billion a year, and we have 43,000 employees at the clinic. And what's fantastic about our story is that we're very proud to be considered a patient experience leader now within the field in healthcare systems. But we absolutely weren't always at the head of the pack. We could go to the next slide. And so we have a great story around really what was the aha mo- what the aha moment was for our CEO. But before I tell that story, if we think about where healthcare was in about 2009, 2010, it's really when the environment started changing. So particularly in US healthcare, there were a lot of really good reasons to start getting more interested in the patient experience. So one of the big ones was, of course, healthcare reform. We weren't quite sure what reimbursements were going to look like, but we knew that there was going to be some percentage, potentially a high percentage, of revenue withheld or reimbursement withheld if, in fact, we didn't hit certain patient experience metrics, and that was true across the U.S. Second factor was that we became very aware of the fact that the healthcare consumer was changing. And whereas if we look at our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, many of them would choose their healthcare provider based on what their primary physician told them. So I really like Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith tells me to go to Dr. Johnson. I go to Dr. Johnson. The current healthcare consumer doesn't choose based on that any longer. Rather, the current healthcare consumer chooses based on the patient experience. And they were telling us this. Um, For us, though, it was really this third piece that brought the concept into action. And this story involves our CEO, Toby Cosgrove. He was at Harvard Business School, and he was providing an overview of the operating model of Cleveland Clinic to a bunch of MBA students. And so he went over the model, told the history of the clinic, and then opened the floor for questions. And so up goes this hand. And, you know, 20-year-old MBA student says, um, Dr. Cosgrove, I have a bit of a story and then I have a bit of a question. And she said, you know, my dad is a gastroenterologist in North Carolina, and he needed micro valve surgery recently. And so Dr. Cosgrove is the CEO of a very large health system, but at the end of the day, He's a cardiac surgeon. He's a mitral valve surgeon. So she had his attention immediately. And uh, she said, you know, we compared our options, and the Cleveland Clinic was clearly a good one. You know, good morbidity, good mortality, you know, good good rates. We, we appreciated the clinical care that he would get there. And there was another one that we felt had comparable comparable clinical care. And she named a health system that we view as a competitor of ours. And she said, um, you know, Dr. Cosgrove, we decided to go to this other healthcare system. So what this in essence meant was that this family from North Carolina flew over Cleveland, Ohio to get to this other facility. And she said, you know, the reason we decided that was because we had heard, even though Cleveland Clinic provides great clinical care, you guys just aren't very nice to people. So my question for you, Dr. Cosgrove, is do you teach empathy in your organization? And the way the story goes, you could hear a pin drop. And so Dr. Cosgrove came back home to Cleveland, Ohio, and said, you know what? We need to do something about this. We've been a leader. We want to continue to be a leader. We want to continue to provide outstanding health care. And in order to do that, we really need to take a critical look at how we're managing the patient experience and particularly how empathy plays into that. 
So if we go to the next slide, please, John. He came back with that great story and he told it. And he told it over and over and over and over again. And he did quite a few other things to help support the idea of patient experience and empathy matters at Cleveland Clinic, including appointing a chief appointing a chief experience officer where we were the first healthcare organization to do that. And then under our chief experience officer's leadership, we instituted a whole lot of best practices. We infused quite a bit of empathy training through service excellence, service excellence model here. And this slide really shows the results. It sounds so simple when I you know, get the summary in four minutes, but this slide really shows our results. So remember, the initiative started in 2009. That was that aha moment, that Harvard Business School story. And when people say to us, so is it working? Are the things you're doing around empathy working? We look at these four statistics generally, or these, these four measures. Gallup engagement references our employee engagement scores. We use Gallup's Gallup tool. The blue and the green line are both HCAPS scores, so the HCAPS recommend and the HCAPS overall rating of the hospital. And then the red line is the number of complaints. So if you think about the aha moment for Dr. Cosgrove happening in 2009, the perfect storm in terms of the landscape of healthcare really starting to change. Um, it, it, it just all came together for us, came back, instituted a whole bunch of different initiatives, and we've had not only initial success, but we've had some sustainable success, which is very exciting to us. To get to your original question, Madge, the empathy video is actually a sustainability tool for us to reinforce why empathy matters at the clinic. And I think probably one of the best parts about that video, I mean, it went viral, it's fantastic. You know, people love it and it's great, it resonates. But I think one of the best parts about that video is if Dr. Casgrove is asked again, does the Cleveland Clinic teach empathy? He doesn't have to say a word, he can hit play. And we can, we can see how he's really taken it quite seriously in terms of infusing his organization with um, awareness and training around empathy. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I, I'm sure folks who are tuning in, uh, thanks, Stacy, have a lot of different questions. Um, I know many are running around in my mind. I'm going to turn now to Martha Hayward, who's also in the studio, who's listening uh, keenly to all of this. And uh, Martha, there's many things I could ask you. Um, one thing that's uh, been on my mind is, you know, we talk, as Stacy refers to um, the uh, person who stood up and said, uh, we hear people are not very nice here. Um, Helen has described a number of ways that empathy sort of manifests, you know, where people feel that they're being listened to. Um, we've talked about it as bedside manner, communication, listening skills. Are we basically, from to your way of thinking, are we talking about the same thing, or have we come upon something maybe even a little bit more powerful with empathy? Well, I think it's a perfect word. It's a perfect focus for uh, moving ahead on patient and family-centered care. As I'm sitting and I'm listening to Helen and to Stacy, as a patient myself, what I, what my experience is that you go into a healthcare environment. <clears throat> And you're relying very much on some instincts. And they, you're discerning safety in your environment for your mere survival. I mean, this is if you have a cold or if you have cancer or whatever you're doing. You're in a survival mode. And you're looking to all sorts of things to tell you whether you're safe, whether you're safe psychologically, physically, and in every other way. And, I, you know, as Helen was talking, I was thinking the cleanliness of the hospital tells me is one level of safety. Um, the, the presentation of the people who approach me, if they're slovenly and in disarray and they're closed, that indicates something about my safety. Um, what I am hearing, uh, most importantly, what I'm hearing in relationships with other people between staff members and clinicians, if there's disrespect shown, that tells me how safe I am in speaking my own voice. Um, and it just sounds, every single indicator tells me what this environment has to offer to me. Um, so empathy, I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we think, if we call empathy being nice. Because empathy is indicated in so many things that can be reliably executed. Um, we can always know that when we approach a patient, if we sit at their level, that you're sending a message of interest. That doesn't take time. And we did a pilot here at IHI with um, one of our uh, collaboratives where we did a physician communication pilot, and it was simply a matter of 
entering the room, first knocking, um, saying, speaking, introducing yourself, saying the person's name, and sitting down. And the amount of trust that's built, you, you have just in approaching the patient, you have said, I am interested, I am safe, I'm here to listen, um, and I know who you are. That's, I think, the setup for an empathetic relationship. The one thing that I have, um, that I'm really interested in, is that I watch, you know, what doctors, what nurses, what staff manage every day. Um, they are around suffering all the time, and I wonder about how hard it is for clinicians and, and staff to find that boundary place that allows them to be in touch with their own experience but doesn't take them over the edge of the patient's experience. We can't have people, people can't function at that level, but and, and Helen, maybe you can help me with this. I understand empathy as being able to identify an emotion within yourself, so you're not in that moment with that patient at that time, but you're willing to identify. You're not, you're not down in that very, very dark. You don't have to go all the way down to that dark place, but always to keep alive within you a time in which you felt that level of vulnerability or fear so that you can relate. Is Does that make sense? Does that yeah, sound it does. Right? No, I think it's interesting. I think... Thank you, Martha. And I think what um, maybe Helen, you might might address this, and this will kind of help us transition even into the Q and A section of the program. But I think that was what I started off with, with sort of con- some confusion of what do I have to do to be expressing empathy and fears about being drawn into things that you don't know at what point how to cut it off, how to do it within a certain amount of time, how to spread it around so you have enough for all your patients. Uh, that day. So we're talking about a kind of an emotional connection that can happen almost with some kind of efficiency, uh, if that's not too cold an idea. And um, I think that's very challenging. So this is a very important uh, area uh, when we speak about empathy because everyone has had the experience of feeling so deeply and so connected to somebody else's suffering that you almost lose yourself. And that in healthcare is not really the best thing for the patient. It's important to cross the boundary into their, what is this is like for that person, um, but to also quickly get back into your role. And so uh, it's very important to know this distinction between empathy versus empathic distress, because research shows, and we all know this, that to be truly empathic, it is labor. It, it takes more of us and it requires more from us. And that's why we have to be careful sometimes to um, know when we're getting overly drawn in or burned out because there's so many suffering people to take care of. So that's why it's important to know that part of empathy is simply understanding another person. It's not always merging into the feeling realm. And when we get too overloaded, it's important to remember to understand what someone is feeling um, and to behave empathically, just as Martha mm-hmm. has said. Well, and is there an element, my my picture of empathy is not only that it's a giving of ourselves, but it's where we receive as well. Because what I see in the work that I do in, patient, in person-centered care is that as people become more person-centered, which I think a huge part, empathy is a huge part of that, that their joy in work, their their performance, their love for their work goes up because they're connecting. And I think that's the empathy factor, that we can be empathetic, that we are as human beings by nature empathetic, but, with it, but it needs to happen within boundaries. The boundaries are important. And I think you're absolutely right that one of the causes of burnout is that when people detach emotionally from patients, the work becomes routinized, it becomes, you know, just checking off a list, and the meaning is lost in the work, which is the most profoundly sad loss in the work of, of health care, because the joy really comes from connecting and making a difference with people. Stacy, um, before we go to chat, I want to ask you if you want to get in on this just quickly, 
And, you know, you, <laughs> because we have short time slots here on the program, and we asked you to tell a, a several-year uh, journey uh, at, at the Cleveland Clinic, and you had the wonderful slide of all the improvement. But um, I'm wondering if there were some sort of key things um, that were learned at the Cleveland Clinic when it came to starting to unpack what was going to help uh, providers and perhaps physicians most of all, but I would imagine other providers as well, kind of connect up with their emotions in a way uh, that would be effective for themselves and for patients. So is there something you can share about that? Sure, and I think um, I think it was very well said by one of my co-panelists before. You know, as humans, we're empathetic beings. So it's not like we're asking people to learn a new skill. Rather, we're creating an environment where um, this, this very, very natural tendency becomes more commonplace. And so for us, a lot of that um, evolved around, revolved and evolved uh, through some cultural transformation here. I mentioned we were great clinically and we knew it. We were not very good in terms of empathy. And patients told us that they came to us for clinical care, but not because they liked us. So we went through a process where we created what we called the Cleveland Clinic Experience. And this was a learning map, visual representation of the culture that we wanted to become. And so we focused very much on patient-centeredness. We focused very much on how every individual, regardless of his or her role in the organization, could contribute to a positive patient experience. And we also tapped into the idea that every one of us in this 43,000-person organization has either been a patient or will be a patient. And so we encourage people to start thinking about how their individual experiences and their personal experiences could help them better understand what the person walking into a very large complex might be feeling or might be going through if they're trying to find their doctor's appointment or while the worried spouse is waiting, 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 waiting while you know his, her husband is having uh, testing done. And so we challenged people to think about their individual contribution and, and ability to be part of um, be part of something that's much bigger than them, and to provide some emotional support, not just to patients and family members, but to to each other, in the hopes of obtaining this this kind of new vision for our future, this Cleveland Clinic experience. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I I can uh, I can see we're all poised to say. Uh, so <laughs> Look at it, Martha and Helen. But I see the questions are piling up uh, here in chat, and I, I, I'm always thrilled. We're always thrilled when we see some of you starting to talk with one another. But uh, John, mostly I think people have figured it out. But just a quick reminder about the use of chat. Thanks. Just make sure that all your uh, questions and comments are directed to all participants in the chat. Uh, just look beneath or right above the text box. It says "Send to all participants." All right. Well, we have a number of really, really interesting questions, but I'm going to start with the one that I thought was maybe sort of bottom up here, or the most recent one, I should say. Um, the most provocative. In my experience, it has been very difficult to get most physicians to acknowledge the value of the soft skills, in quotes, let alone spend non-productive, non-revenue generating time attending education in soft skills areas. And then this person goes on to uh, describe what is clearly a big challenge. So research might uh, maybe be persuasive uh, for some of these folks uh, in what's soft or not soft, and I can see Helen's quite quite ready to talk about uh, that, uh, but uh, go for it, yeah. Uh, that's a great observation, and um, back in 2009, Mass General Hospital put out a quality improvement um, initiative where every single doctor was required to take empathy, communication, or end-of-life training, or adjust culture. And um, 
so every department received this type of training. And um, one of the biggest surprises was that even in departments that typically don't value soft skills, when the training was framed in, in, in scientific terms and what happens in the body physiologically, what happens, you know, with people's heart rates and so on when they're in difficult situations or when a, a patient is, um, that conversation completely changed. And the evaluations for these sessions um, were so positive because it was t speaking in a language that was valued in this scientific community. And that was just the start of a huge ripple effect in a, in a de dedication to service excellence at, at the MGH and within partners. Is that is that okay? I mean, in some sense, is that is it's a it's a way in, and is is it good enough? I mean, or do you think it's sort of a, a jumping off point? Because uh, even the notion of talking about soft skills may be something we'd like to at some point park somewhere. You know, Martha. Well, if I can, I, the idea that empathy isn't related to revenue readmissions and all the other things that plague the system is completely absurd. Because I can tell you that um, you know I it, our Colleagues in safety always, are always talking about compliance, and um, anybody who's been a parent knows that uh, people will listen to those people that they trust and respect, and won't listen to their mother. That's not what I meant to say, but it is true. Um, people do not listen to people with whom they don't have a connection and feel hurt. So when a patient is present and does not feel known, there's certain basic. I mean, if you look at Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, we need to know that we're safe that we're known, that we're present. Before, if that doesn't happen, we can't learn. We certainly can't learn. And so it's not a, it's, I don't see it as a patient as noncompliance. I see it as, as uh, really bad communication because you haven't given me what I need in order, to, in order to learn, which I need to be relaxed. I need to feel safe and trusting. Um, so I can't learn. You, you could be talking at me for an hour. And I, so the, you need to give me, we need to give all patients that, that dignity and respect so that they can hear. Compliance is not the issue, and this is very much tied to revenue. It's very much tied to time. It's astounding to me that people say that empathy takes time. The lack of empathy means that things are repeated over and over with no results. That's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. uh, Stacy, and uh, then maybe I'll swing back uh, to Helen. What <clears throat> what have you found out uh, was sort of the <laughs> um, winning arguments uh, to kind of get physicians engaged? And I'm curious about, people are talking about nurses in this chat as well. Um, what, what has been the difference in terms of approach or uh, engagement uh, at Cleveland Clinic? Sure. We took a um, we take we took a two pronged approach really with our physician population specifically, and so the first one was very much in line with what Helen was saying about the research. You know, showing the numbers, showing how empathetic and skilled communication can improve a physician's quality of life. It can decrease legal action. There's all these metrics around that are available. They're out there, and um, you know, much of it is published around how it can be good for a physician. So that was a bit of. Um, um, the carrot piece of this. I suppose the stick side of it was we made our physician communication data transparent. So tapping into a trait that um, we found many of our physicians have, which is competitiveness, we started showing people their physician communication HCAPs scores. And so you give people a moment to argue that the data is wrong and that that can't possibly be them, but then you let them see if there's opportunity for improvement specifically compared to their peers. And if there is, what we had ready to go was a designed physician communication course. So we created it at the clinic. We were able then to say to physicians, you know what, you can do better and we want you to do better. And when you're ready to do better, we'd like you to take this full day training course. Here are all the benefits to it. Here's all the research around it. And we're gonna support you through this. So that two-pronged approach seemed to be quite successful for us. To the nurse point, that same communication training is available or very similar communication training is available for clinicians who are non-physicians as well. And um, we found a lot of success with, um, with that, that approach here. 
Thanks. Differences at all, Helen, that you've come across in terms of nurses and the nursing staff, um, ways that might distinguish it all, uh, or, or have you been kind of looking primarily at, at sort of the physician engagement? So so far, um, mm-hmm. that that's been my focus. But yeah. the nursing staff, all new, um, actually all new employees at MGH um, get training, and the service excellence department is very focused on creating this as a standard for the hospital. Well, it does relate to one question or comment that's in here, which is somebody said, when you're hiring, how do you screen for empathy, um, and how does that become part of you know the um, inquiry about somebody coming to work in an organization. Any thoughts on that? Well, um, it, it's interesting. You know, at, at Partners, every new um, intern now gets training in empathy and professionalism. It's just part of what what uh, they get in orientation, and it's sustained at various points throughout the training. And this is also part of um, the onboarding process of all employees. This is a very important focus and a way to um, set the expectation for what the culture of this of the hospital is. Um, and so starting at the top and having this permeate throughout the organization is, is really how you affect the change. Okay. Um, there was a question here. I, I'm going to see if I can swing back to it, which um, I'm not sure if I got it completely. So if the person who chatted it in wants to do so again or amend, it was a little bit also about using empathy um, as a means of helping patients, or not using, but, you know, in other words, deploying empathy as a means of helping patients connect in also more with their own abilities to um, do some managing of their own care and their own problems. And so, you know, as opposed to just the cause and effect, this can maybe improve things with asthma or, you know, taking your medications or et cetera, et cetera, sort of as a way to engage patients uh, in, in their own health uh, and care. I think what you're what you're talking about is um, empathizing with the fact that most people want to be greater agents of their own health care and feel that they're not just passive recipients of recommendations from from medical professionals. And I think it's very empathic to. Um, excite somebody about being a partner in their own health care and having them participate in in the decisions and have it be a, an ongoing dialogue that that to me is true empathy because you're you're treating that person as a whole person who has agency who has opinions who has um, motivations or might need help with motivation but Partnership in healthcare is how we're going to change the healthcare landscape in our country. Yeah, I think you know, I think we have to be careful not to isolate empathy the way we do everything else. We don't want to silo mm-hmm. <laughs> empathy, and we don't want to, you know, it's not the silver bullet. What I think what Dr. Reese is, what we're all talking about is that empathy is lacking, and by encouraging, reintroducing, training for, and providing the atmosphere for empathy, um, we are going to be we are going to see better outcomes, better results for all the efforts that we're making to reduce costs, to make care more humane, to increase safety. And it it comes from the ability, you know, at, at IHI, we talk a lot about moving from what's the matter to what matters most. The ability to know what matters most to the patient comes from, is born of empathy, the ability to ask, the interest. And so when you've got what, you know, in today's world we call call um, med reconciliation issues, which is a little negative, um, and the physician is willing to say to the patient, tell me what it's like in the, in the morning when you wake up. When do you take your medication? What's going on in your house right then? Well, my son's running for the bus, and you know, I, I am, I, I'm in my wheelchair, and sometimes I can't. Oh, okay. So the, that's an empathic response of, of engaging somebody, entering into somebody's world, and saying, so really, taking this medication four times a day, it probably isn't working for you, right? So that's better care, understanding what matters to patients, and empathy is at the core of that. Okay, thanks a lot. Stacey, um, 
you're you're our one person on the phone today, so I don't want to forget you for five seconds. And do do feel free to chime in here. There's a lot of interesting comments on the chat, suggestions that maybe um, community health workers, others who may be becoming more a part of teams in healthcare, uh, can maybe aid um, in in the creation of empathy that um, strengths and weaknesses that maybe tend to balance out on teams. That's uh, I was wondering about empathy is more of a team sport. Uh, we have a nice listener, uh, Carl, who has uh, been sort of summing up here, and it says to hear, so I am seeing here on the chat that we need to be think about empathy for self, peers, and patients. And um, so thanks, Carl, for that. And one person suggested that unless you have empathy for yourself, it is very, very hard to have empathy for others. And um, where are we? I, I think there's so many issues going on right now about concerns about burnout, compassion fatigue. Somebody else uh, shared that phrase with me uh, the other day. Um, is that something that's that's being looked at a lot in terms of sort of where where it all starts, um, Helen? Uh, that is getting increasing and important attention. Um, many hospitals are now putting a lot of attention on this subject and creating opportunities for individual consultations. We do this at MGH. And often it is not that the person who's not showing empathy doesn't have it or lacks it. It's that something else is going on in their life that is really making it almost impossible for them to bring their full selves to their job. So self-empathy is has not been emphasized enough. Um, you know, in, in the healthcare profession, it's usually all about what, what's coming out of you toward the patient. But just like the analogy of putting your own oxygen mask on first, you can only go so far if you're not sustaining your own health and your own resources. And I think this is an enormous open area for improvement that is is starting to happen. And I see it, too, that when uh, we actually identify that someone needs more support, it's they're starting to get it instead of, oh, just work harder or try harder. There, there are um, concessions being made for people who need support. Well, and, and Stacy, the video that Cleveland Clinic did, if I think that's what resonates so profoundly with people, um, the idea of who these people are who are walking into the treatment room with the patient and that we're all involved in this. And I know that every single time I watch, there's one where the uh, a receptionist kneels down to the child's level and she puts a sticker on her and it comes up and says, wishes she had had children. And Every time I see that, my heart, you know, th- this is what's involved. The beauty that she's become this this great receiver of children when it's her loss or her her, her, her inability to have children, whatever. And every single one of those scenes in that empathy video shows that the guy who's changing the light bulbs, everybody's involved. We all have it. And how can we draw it out? And and what I'm really hearing here is that it's it's not about skill. It's about culture. I mean, skills, behaviors build cultures, but you have to be um, in a culture that allows this mm-hmm. and that promotes this, right? Something is is um, simple as uh, having a piano in the lobby. I walked down into the lobby one day and a classical pianist was playing and you could see a difference on every person's face in, in, in within hearing distance of this. Um, it's not all about beating training into people. It really is about creating a place where people feel joy in their work and and um, there's so many opportunities to make that happen. Stacy, um, what about um – I'm going to just throw a couple questions and then feel free to react to anything else you've been listening to. How can you really show empathy when you have a very limited time to talk to patients? That is a question that has come in. I think we've been talking about that a little bit. Uh, many There's been a lot of discussion on this chat and touched on a little here about very high-tech environments in healthcare today, which sometimes seem you know, the exact opposite of any kind of an empathetic environment or not conducive. Um, 
Can you speak to some of that um, at Cleveland Clinic, which in some ways is, you know, one type of environment right now um, that's repeated over and over again, though, in different ways uh, around the country and internationally? Sure, and I think this really plays into something, Martha, you said earlier about this idea of we don't want empathy to be in a silo. So for us at the clinic, at Cleveland Clinic, when we think about empathy, we think about how it relates to things like compassion, emotional intelligence, and service. So to the idea of, you know, how do you show empathy when you're in a rush? How do you show empathy when you need to enter data into electronic medical record? You know, there's there are lots of different ways that you can still create a caring environment. So as an example, demonstrating service, consistent service standards, is a great way to start creating an environment where people feel warm and welcomed and comfortable. So, sure, I may have to use this medical record, electronic medical record as a provider, but that doesn't mean before doing that, I can't take the three seconds, five seconds to make eye contact, which is one of our expected service behaviors, and say, I'm going to be entering data into the data, into this computer while we talk today. This is so that I can collect important information about your health care and then move on with it. So there tends to be this perception that showing empathy takes more time or removes or or causes barriers and processes and actually it tends to be the opposite. If you're able to figure out how to work in some things like service, some things like empathy, some things like compassion into the process that you need to follow, it ends up actually saving time in the long run for you because patients feel better, they're more comfortable and having those interactions with you. So getting people to actually start doing that certainly wasn't easy. Um, We talk about how we're on a journey. We're certainly not 100% there yet. Uh, But these are the approaches we're taking, and we're we're challenging our teams to think about this every interaction, every patient, every time, and every interaction with each other. Because also, to an earlier point, I'm not sure if it was Martha or Helen made it, um, the idea of supporting each other is incredible. We show service, compassion, caring, empathy to each other. There may be a day that I'm just not ready to deal with that patient in front of me, but you know what? My colleague over here is, and my colleague cares about me, so he or she is going to step in and is going to work with that patient. So kind of a couple couple of responses yeah, to your question no, I, there, Madge. I appreciate that. And there were some comments about uh, suggestions also that um, empathy, somebody suggested that, you know, in at least in this person's environment, seen better empathy towards patients and not really reflected with, among coworkers. Uh, so I don't know that you can pick and choose um, <laughs> and, and decide in this instance. Um, I'm not sure that would be a fully integrated thing. Um, I'm going to, we're just going to get a quick note from uh, John in just a second, but I want to just, uh, remind people. We try to get these reminders up here. First of all, we created a f- great slide, sort of a new improvement. If you want to follow up with any of our guests today, we did provide their email addresses for you. I think in each instance you can learn more about the programs, uh, training uh, opportunities, uh, ways to get hold of resources. Martha is always happy to um, engage in conversation. Martha's involved in a lot of interesting uh, projects here at IHI that relate to, where empathy in some ways is fundamental uh, to what's going to be possible, whether it's talking about end of life or uh, reliability in patient-centeredness. So I I invite you, uh, Helen's involved in a lot of things as well, and I'm sure Stacy could share more about what's going on with patient experience at the Cleveland Clinic. All of our resources, you can download slides and chat when you get off today, but everything gets posted again uh, tomorrow morning to our website. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, We talked a lot today about reclaiming empathy and the best ways to engage with patients. But what about engaging our colleagues and peers? IHI believes effective communication between colleagues and peers is a critical component to improving quality, costs, and teamwork in care settings. And that teamwork is most important after an adverse event. That's why we're teaming up with medically induced trauma support services and hosting a roll-up-your-sleeves type seminar to help teams learn and work through adverse events. Inspired by our white paper on respectful management of serious clinical events, this seminar will feature expert faculty, 
who will engage and instruct participants so that each individual and team can return to their organization with the knowledge, skills, and techniques necessary to support and train their peers in this pivotal work. This workshop starts here in July at the IHI in Cambridge. You can find out more information by visiting IHI.org or emailing us at info at IHI.org. We hope you can join us this summer. All right. Thanks, John. And um, I'm glad people are figuring out so much wonderful cut, uh, copying and pasting into chat here. Um, I told our guests how much our WIHI audience loves resources and links, and we've really we've captured a lot. Helen's been involved in a lot of interesting research papers, uh, which I just asked her to pretty much uh, skip and hop through, um, but you can really sort of follow along. And do you want to, maybe as I'm going to go around the horn right now, I'll start with Helen, sort of parting words and kind of the latest and greatest and, you know, what you're most excited about right now. Helen. Well, I'm pleased to uh, let everyone know that today um, one of our um, longstanding projects was published in um, the Public Library of Science, or or PLOS One. Uh, The title of the paper is The Influence of Patient-Clinician Relationships on Healthcare Outcomes. We did a systematic review and a meta-analysis of all randomized control trials, and um, we found that there is a small but significant improvement in hard healthcare outcomes when there is a strong patient-physician relationship. And the impacts that uh, were significant were on obesity, asthma, osteoarthritis, lower respiratory infections, and somatic complaints. So that's out as of today. All right. Well, thank you very much. So, you know, this, uh, Helen's talked on a lot of dimensions, and this is some of the hard facts or facts that we hope can at least gain an entryway sometimes, uh, particularly with folks uh, who might have relegated or might be still thinking that, you know, empathy is, you know, uh, a quick smile. Um, You know, even that, I guess, is better than (laughs) nothing at all. (laughs) But uh, I want to thank you very much, Helen. Martha, some uh, thoughts kind of? Well, I'm particularly thrilled that people like Helen and, and Cleveland Clinic and Stacy and others who uh, the interest that people are showing around empathy because from the patient perspective, this is the single greatest and most meaningful work that will affect the lives of patients today. Um, and you know, as we as we uh, set to studying and 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 getting results and showing outcomes, that's one thing. But adding empathy to the to the mix um, is what is going to affect and change the lives of patients and families as well. The suff- 90% of the suffering that I see coming uh, um, out of hospitals is not physical because we have really good pain control. It's emotional, okay. and that's a lack of empathy. All right. Thank you very, very much. Somebody said to me, and my coworker said to me, um, when she thinks of empathy, it's somebody saying to her in so many words, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm I'll, I'm here I'll, in some fashion. You're not going to go through this, you know, um, by yourself, which mm-hmm. I thought was another really interesting dimension. Um, Stacy, um, kind of parting words. Thank you so much for your participation today. It's just great. I'm glad we uh, caught you, even though you uh, flew halfway or I don't know how, how far. <laughs> from, two thirds of the way. Two thirds of the way around the world from from Cleveland. You had a lot of people on this chat today. I think from uh, on our call today from Ohio, by the way. But uh, parting thoughts. <laughs> um, just first of all, it's such a privilege to be part of this, um, and, and particularly to be part of a panel with Martha and Helen. Thank you again for the opportunity. You know, the Cleveland Clinic is just—it's—we're thrilled to tell our story. I think for me, the big takeaway here is that it's very exciting to see empathy being something that we can talk about again in healthcare. It's—it's. Um, it's, it's exciting to see the research coming out. A lot of a lot of it that Helen's driving, among others, I think, um, brings another way to look at empathy and its role in healthcare. And um, I think that's incredibly important. I guess my big takeaway would be that when I think about the Cleveland Clinic story, you know, we've been successful because every individual in this organization was challenged to think about how he or she could demonstrate empathy in their work environments. And so then that that would be my challenge to the audience and and a takeaway for the day. You know, an individual absolutely can start 
a movement around empathy and healthcare. And for many of us, it's just getting back to basics. It's why we got into the field in the first place. All right. Thank you so much, Stacy, Helen, Martha. So thrilled that I could tap um, and get on each of your schedules and <laughs> we could all be here at the same time. Um, and uh, thank you, our wonderful audience, for your great participation. At one point, there were almost, I think, 1,200 of you uh, with us and engaged, 1,200 lines. So we really appreciate it. Again, all those resources, uh, you can download a bunch of them when you get off uh, the chat today. Email info at IHI.org or you'll find them all on IHI.org tomorrow morning, including the audio. Next up on WIHI, it's all kind of related. April 24th, transforming tensions and tempers on healthcare teams that may require uh, some some empathy as well. <laughs> and um, <laughs> while we're talking about teams, uh, that uh, information is on our website right now. Uh, I want to remind everybody that um, you you did see a lot of links uh, on in the chat, uh, but again. The those will all be compiled on a resource document. Vicki here to my left, off my left elbow, has been keeping track of everything. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morris, our Northeastern Co-op. Tala helps us out uh, quite a bit as well. So it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Think about some empathy. Think about uh, a kind of a, a small empathy, uh, small amounts of empathy that you might be able to share today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thanks for tuning in.